And he, he was on his back and his eyes were open. And I still couldn't tell what happened. Like he had a little bit of blood in the corner of his mouth. I couldn't tell if he'd been hit in the face with a tool or what. There was a lot of things going on. And, and you know, behind me, you could hear like the mayhem that was going on at the structure. And it was, you know, we were right there. You know, he looked like he tried to take a breath and look like when I say this, a huge rush of blood. Like, remember, I'm a surgeon, fellas. Like, my huge rush of blood and your huge rush of blood are probably different amounts. And I was like, oh, shit. Like, something has a fucking hole in it that's not supposed to. And I pulled his collar protector down. You could see a a big wound in his neck. I still don't know to this day who called me. But she screamed into the phone like multiple officers down, marking in the mar, and slammed the phone down. And, and you know, as it turned out, like obviously bad location, bad intersection, bad information, like you know all of the above. But I was already heading south, so I was able to turn on all the emergency equipment and come racing into downtown. We get into the stairwell, and you know, at this point, like we'd run four blocks and. You know, it's really disorienting down there. I mean, I always hear, I've heard many people describe the fog of war, and I've never been on the battlefield, but I can tell you, like, with the gunfire ricocheting off of buildings and reports of people, you know, in other locations, like, I didn't know whether we were under attack by one person or 20 still at this point in the night. You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast. Brought to you by the Assist the Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community. And now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Shashuta is considered the founding father of surgery. He believed the definition of a surgeon is a person who possesses courage and presence of mind, a hand free of perspiration tremorless grip of sharp instruments and who carries his operations to the success and advantage of his patients who have entrusted their lives to the surgeon. The surgeon should respect this absolute surrender and treat their patients as if they were his own child. Welcome back ATO fans. Today, we are sitting with a true healer and lifesaver. He was born in Washington, D.C. and raised in Kensington, Maryland. He moved to Dallas, Texas in 2001 to train in surgery at Parker Memorial Hospital, and he has remained in Dallas since. This guest's incredible resume is a mile long, as he has dedicated his life to helping others. He formerly served as the chief of trauma center at Parkland Memorial Hospital. He was also assistant professor and trauma surgeon in the Division of Burns in critical care at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center 
and he continues to be a practicing trauma surgeon. Today, he is a senior medical officer at the Department of Homeland Security. In this role, he is responsible for operational medicine across DHS, in addition to countering threats to the United States and worldwide. He has the rank of lieutenant, and he is the chief medical officer for the Dallas Police Department. Dr. Alex Eastman, welcome to the ATL stage. Seriously, Doc, thank you for taking the time out of your busy-ass schedule and sitting down with us. Joe, you bet. It's really uh, great to be here. Long overdue, and uh, the only thing I am a little bitter about is uh, Kent knows that my theme music, Pour Some Sugar On Me, always comes on when I take the stage, so oh. the fact that we went without it, uh, I'm not sure what to say first thing off the bat. Hey, I, I can make that happen. We, don't <laughs> worry. I'm sure I think Connecticut can, can, can pipe that in. But seriously, great to be here with you guys. This is just a fantastic um, product, and I've been a listener for a long time, and honored to be a guest with you guys. Well, they, hey, the honor's ours, man. You, you've done, We're going to get into your body of work, and it's impressive, and you continue just continue there's there's so many different different iterations of dr eastman and every time a new one comes out it's bigger and you 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 just expand you keep expanding and and your your career is just amazing and your dedication to services it's just incredible well thanks john i'm trying to take my waistline in the opposite direction all right so i don't want that to keep expanding but we're we're, same work in progress hey all of us we we, none of us getting younger sitting there Speaking of, uh, before we get into your episode, uh, Doc, I want to uh, introduce a guest co-host. Uh, it's Sergeant Kent Wolverton of the Narcotics Unit. That's what it says on my underwear. Yeah, that's what it, yeah. <laughs> right next to that. You drew it in with your Sharpie. Underneath yeah, the Haynes. Does that for me. Yeah, the, those tidy whities Hey, tell the listener a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got involved in this and, uh, you know. And, and I definitely wanted you here for Doc's episode because y'all have uh, y'all have worked together for quite a while. Yeah, we we spent a couple of years together and working with the SWAT team. Um, about six years there, I did another two years over in K nine, and then just recently I moved over to Narcotics to take care of their admin stuff for them. Uh, started off in Southeast, where all good cops start. God's country. Um, yeah, I mean it, it's it is. We'll just leave it at that. Um, <laughs> I've been listening to the podcast for a long time. I, I really enjoy it and, and getting to take part in it is, is great. You know, we, we've been going through the wellness training, looking at things here and there. And I think it's a great way to highlight the things that we're trying to accomplish in the department and even outside of the department, just as, as individuals. Yeah. I, I, thank you. And thank you. And, 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 you know, you and I've talked before, I had, I really had no idea that you even had an interest in wanting to get behind a mic. I am glad that you, uh, that you're wanting to help me out on this because I could take, I could use all the help I can get honestly. Cause it's this is there, there's uh, I, I'm new to this. I'm not a professional. Anybody that listens can hear that really quickly. And me being around all these uh, true crime podcast nerds at that festival this past weekend, everybody really, those are, those guys are serious. This is their, this is how they make their money. We can update your LinkedIn bio and make you professional. No problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's taken yeah. care of. I'm, I'm going to, Get my Wikipedia page and uh, update that. So, all right. Thanks, Ken. Seriously, thank you for being here. Yes. Doc, you ready to get into this? Let's do it. All right. You bet. We're going to start off easy. I just want to tell the listener, we're going to start, you know, we have a flow, right? We have a beginning and an end, a quasi-end, because it, it, it's not over yet for uh, for Dr. Eastman. But 
tell the listeners where you were born and, and where'd you grow up? Yeah, you bet. I was uh, born in Washington, D.C., actually, the um, son of two attorney parents who moved to Washington after law school. And, um, you know, uh, great family life, uh, mom, dad. I have a younger brother that's seven years younger than I am, who I'm as close to as anyone in the world, um, who's just a uh, fantastic human being, way, way better person than I am. Um, but grew up uh, outside of D.C., uh, although big Texas roots, my father from San Antonio, uh, mom's from Southern California originally. And look, uh, it was a great place to grow up. I grew up, you know, with um, parents who believed in serving others and, and doing the right thing and 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 giving your, you know, what you've been given back to other people. Uh, interestingly, uh, they were probably as far as humanly possible from being the police. So this was always a little bit of a surprise to them. Um, well, maybe not a surprise as you hear sort of some of the ways I came up, but but they were always a little startled by uh, this career uh, twist. And, and it really was a twist. It was never something I thought you know, I would end up doing, but, um, but yeah, so grew up in DC in the suburbs there and, you know, uh, but have called Dallas home for more than 20 years now. Speaking of growing up in DC, <clears throat> what is the, in your opinion, the greatest Washington Redskin running back ever? Oh, I mean, there's, there is only one that makes that list, uh, for a number of reasons. But, uh, if you come, uh, into my house right here in Dallas I still, I have not still a signed John Riggins jersey hanging. Crank uh, up that diesel on the wall. Crank up that diesel, <laughs> and, and I mean, look, a guy who, you know, a, a guy who tells it like it is at all times, even to his detriment. I think, uh, but but probably, you know, the best, one of the best uh, Washington football players ever to don the jersey, and and I will tell you, Joe, uh, it has not been easy. Uh, to live here uh, amongst you people uh, <laughs> yeah. for 20 years and still try to stay a Washington fan. What do you mean, you people? <laughs> and yeah. still, hey. still try to stay a Washington fan. So, Well, at least uh, we haven't won a Super Bowl since you've lived here. <laughs> true, <laughs> you know? true. Yeah, listen, we're, I'm we're not sure that'd be tolerable. Together. Yeah, we're I'm all not sure that'd be tolerable. I do find it kind of strange that as successful as you are in your professional career, you grew up a loser it, the wow. entire time while the Cowboys were just running through the NFL. Yeah. Listen, I don't think that's appropriate, uh, and it's uh, it's motivational. I will tell you, like uh, uh, I'll tell you, you know, my uh, my brother and I once upon a time uh, talked about buying the Redskins, and I said, "Look, I think Damn. the only way to right this ship is to buy the football team." My brother said, "Look, two things: uh, one." We're short about a billion and a half dollars. And two, I don't think they're going to let two other dudes from Bethesda buy the team after what this one's done to it. So, yeah, no kidding. Boy. No, I, you know, I, I'm a Cowboy fan, but I, I will say that I respect the history of some of these iconic teams going back to, going back to Th- uh, Theismann and, and just the, the longtime rival, rivalry between the, the, uh, the Cowboys and the Redskins. It's not much what it used to be, but it's still – it's still a tune-in game, even though they're even if they're bad or good that particular season. Yeah, listen, Joe, I remember very clearly when I was little. You know, my dad, obviously a San Antonio native, was a huge Cowboys mm-hmm. fan living in Washington, and I remember, you know, I don't remember the date, but you know, when I 
I started my life as a Cowboys fan and realized like I wasn't about to spend the next, you know, 15 years in school, getting my ass kicked every Monday. So I was like, I'm going to go ahead and turn this around and became a, a skins fan. And, you know, now whatever they're the commanders now, but, um, you know, last year I, I, I bought my son some tickets, um, to the cow to, took him to his first football game. Uh, and it was the, you know, whatever they were football team, yeah, Cowboys game, uh, in December and about two weeks before the game, he says, you know, dad, I, I've got some bad news for you. Like, I mean, he's eight at the time. He just turned eight. He's like, I just want you to know I'm a Cowboys fan now. So of course we go to the game. I'm sandwiched between, you know, two, uh, a longtime Cowboys fan in, in Eddie Garcia, who mm. is horrible to watch games with because you're going to get a steady stream of shit talking from that yeah. guy. And then from my son, <laughs> who reminded me all the way home that uh, the, that Washington sucks for you know an hour in traffic on the but way back from Washington. Yeah, nice. I was like, this is great. Like, great. Yeah, Thanks, guys. It's like a great experience. Yeah, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. I will not be back. I yeah. can tell you that. Not anytime soon. Yeah, the interesting. The uh, the commanders, their their new name. What do you what, what do you think of that name when you first heard it? It's, yeah, it's look, named after the uh, the great Scott McDonald that started Dallas SWAT. <laughs> apparently, <laughs> there's a number of ways I could take that, but I'm gonna go with the right up the middle uh, answer to that and just say, look, I mean, uh, you know, I last heard a few years ago the owner say over his dead body was he changing the name, and he seems like he's still ticking. And now we've had yeah. three names since then, so. Yeah. You know, look, it's tough, man. I think when you talk about um, the world being a little too sensitive right now, yeah. I mean, I, I I always tell this story. I was in Santa Fe, New Mexico um, for a, a work trip, and I was walking around the square in Santa Fe, and there was a Native American dude with a redskin hat on. Mm-hmm. And I was like, damn, now that is not something you see every day. But And he was selling jewelry, like on the square, you know, right. and like... So I was like, hey, man, uh, I'm going to buy a set of earrings or something from you. But we've got to talk about, like, your choice of headgear or whatever. And we had a fan, uh, just an incredible conversation about how, you know, most Native Americans don't, like, get upset about that. They yeah. recognize, you know, it's not. But it's been, you know, like many things in 2022 can be hijacked by a small, loud minority of people. And yeah. look what happens, you know. Yeah, it's just it. I always it's 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 called the way it is right and and right now in this point in time in our history that's right now this is the way it is and and like you said it usually if but I believe that if some people could just sit and have a conversation as opposed to being more concerned about getting likes and shares and hashtag and going viral on something yeah I think that they they can come to a better understanding of 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 what of what you you and I we we don't know each other that well. I've known you for years in yeah. passing, but I love the Cowboys. You hate the Cowboys. I mean, we we can yeah. talk about football and 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 have disagreements, but and, but but I think if people just have conversations and stop and think about it and and see somebody's point of view or perspective from their side. You can, you can actually you don't have to agree with them, but you can have an understanding and, and understand things more. Yeah, you know, I, I know we're going to talk about July 7th later yes. on, but um, after that, I was, uh, Jermaine Point, I was doing some sort of interview, and um, and I was talking about how, as a surgeon, you know, you really um, recognize how similar we are on the inside, um, mm. and, and, you know, you walk up to the operating table 
when somebody's abdomen's already open and you look inside, like you can't tell if they're black, white, Jewish, Muslim, like they all look the same. Now, I probably could have worded it better because I said on the news that we're all pink on the inside and a lot of people like 100% appropriate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. took that, you know, in a slightly different direction than I intended it. But but I mean, the points well taken, like we need to spend a lot more time uh, remembering that, you know, uh, whether you're police or protester or, you know, Jew or Muslim or whatever, like we, we have, everybody wants the same things and we're much more similar on the inside. I think the Cowboys, I mean, the Redskins commanders football team debacle is uh is a great example of that. Like we have, we, you know, and I know we're going to talk about current jobs and roles and things like that, but we have real problems yeah. uh, in this country that need to be addressed and nipping at each other's, you know, uh, flaws or small uh, things that don't matter not going to help any of us. No, it, there, there's there's so much more serious shit going yeah, on. I absolutely. mean, you know, um, anybody that listens to this podcast, you can hear about traumatic incidents and and death and struggles. And you know what? Um, with, with my own little personal issues, just like everybody at this table has got their own issues in life, the name of a sports team is way down my list. Man, to you, say you the know? least, brother. I I want to I want to ask you something. So you've you're young growing up in dc uh enjoying riggins and and and, uh and the (laughs) hogs right what who and what inspired you to want to help others at at, at that point you 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 talk about your uh your your parents uh being attorneys what was the turning point for you to want to truly help others yeah joe it's a great question because i i don't there's not like, you know, a lot of people say, look, I've got this formative figure in my life. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, I feel like I got so much of my character and my work ethic from my dad and my dedication and, and devotion to the things that are important from my mom. But, but, you know, the way I came to, to medicine as a career, you know, I did a lot of stuff before, um, and, and I, you know, I mean, I had been a fireman and a and a rescuer and a, you know, an emergency room paramedic uh, in 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 a big trauma center just outside of D.C. where I grew up. And, you know, I was doing all this stuff. And one day I sort of, you know, and this was like my second year at UT, my sophomore year, I looked at myself and I was like, man, what are you doing? Like all of these things sort of point to the fact that you need to go be a doctor um, and stop like you look at all the things you you do and you're all of them have the common theme of helping people in some sort of crisis and you know the the rest is history you know I've had some some wise mentors along the trail um, and and I hope we'll talk about some of them but I remember you know particularly as this was starting and taking off and the way it started is is again I'm something I'm sure we'll talk about but you know uh it was a fascinating uh journey and when I started I called a a very prominent surgeon in New Orleans uh named Norman McSwain who um who's now deceased but uh, became a dear friend and mentor and he said look Alex like your personality and your character and your the things you're doing like a lot of doors are going to open to you um and you should walk through every single one of them uh 
And you may turn back around and come back out of a couple, but like, that's the way to live your life. Like go through those doors and see what's on the other side. Sound sage advice. And, and I've repeated it to many, many a young surgical trainee or someone that wants to get into this side of, you know, this sort of niche of the business, like go through those doors and, and see what you see on the other side. That's how we are. That's how we're here. And how many those you talking about going through doors and I, and I talked about different iterations of, of Dr. Eastman, which there, there are many, and I'm sure there are many more doors you haven't gone through that probably, probably closing in on doors that you've, you've gone through in, in different options. But speaking of the doors, were there any doors you went through and you, and you just, no, this isn't from me that you can remember. Like, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I spent, um, uh, the better part of a year working on Capitol Hill for, um, for a congressman, and for the uh, House of Representatives Ways and Means Committee, you know, working on tax policy and, and money policy. And, 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 you know, it became pretty apparent to me um, that, you know, the fruits of your labor when you work at that level come for your children and your children's children. I mean, tax policy, dry and boring and whatever. But it, it became very clear to me that I wasn't destined for a Although it's ironic now, so come full circle, I wasn't destined to a career in the government, although here I am working for the government currently. But, um, you know, it, it made me realize that I wasn't patient enough for that and needed some more um, adrenaline and instant gratification uh, to see the fruits of my labor and now kind of come full circle. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you, you got to, you know, the, the, the important part about this is, is, is at every step finding out about yourself and and what you're made of and and you know i think you know everybody the sort of cliche term joe's everybody says you know know your limitations like i i would have been miserable uh sitting there and i probably would also have weighed 400 pounds because they were like eating and drinking whiskey on the reg uh up there uh in those days so like mad men days yeah <laughs> like it was insane like parties in the hallways and you know uh, reps and lobbyists paying for dinners and it just wasn't for me. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I said, nope, like glad to have had the experience and actually an invaluable experience now as I deal with, um, congressmen and senators and staff, uh, on a, you know, regular basis in my current role. Well, you understand that you understand that world too, right? From early on, how old, how old were you when this, when you were doing that? Man, I was in my twenties for yeah. sure. I was young and, um, and, and it was, you know, pre-medical school and, and my parents both, um, you know, growing up in DC, if you stay there long enough, it's sort of impossible to avoid the, the bug of politics. But my dad was really involved, um, in, in politics at, uh, you know, in sort of the middle phase of his career, um, and so, you know, like you're there, you're immersed in it, and then you get out and, and move down here and you're like, holy shit, there's like a real world out here. Yeah. It's not always like this. But but that, you know, a clear example of um, something that I knew wouldn't wouldn't um, fulfill me in the way that I, you know, I, I couldn't articulate it then very well, but I, I knew it wasn't for me. Well, you understand it now because you've gone through so many doors yeah. and step back through the door and you go, wait a minute. And you, and you also, you're... You're much more mature and seasoned than young twenty-something-year-old doctor. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a couple people that might argue with that assessment. Like uh, (laughs) they might take you to task over that. I mean, I'd like to think I am, uh, but uh, uh, you know, not in every way. But yeah, it's a good point. I get taken to task a lot in this campaign, (laughs) so I'm I'm used to it. It seems like you're really comfortable 
becoming more uncomfortable, like learning learning something new and putting yourself into a different situation. You've you've done it multiple times throughout your career and made big moves, but your self awareness of you know I, I I either don't like what I'm doing or I want to try something different. A lot of people get real comfortable with what they're doing early on, and they don't want to move because they don't know what's coming next. But you seem to have that whole outlook and philosophy of what's next. Let's do it. Yeah, I mean, I think. You know, it's it. I've never really looked at it that way, but but it is um, a profoundly uncomfortable experience to to come into a brand new group or start something new. And really, I mean, let's be honest, and I hope we talk about this, have no earthly idea what it is you're getting yourself into. But, you know, I think about, um, you know, sort of falling back on my fundamental surgical training and 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 you learn some principles that you can always fall back on no matter what is going on around you. Very not dissimilar from being police or being on the SWAT team. Like you learn some things that are applicable no matter what you're doing. Um, and, and so I think you take those principles and you apply them to whatever situation you're in. And of course, Ken, I'm just a you know, all around good dude. So that kind of helps. No, I mean, it's written all over your face for sure. <laughs> yeah. Right, right. Absolutely. I only have good people on this, yeah, on this podcast. Of course. Of course. Uh, and we actually, Josh and Misty, we were trying to get you on early on. You're, yeah. you're so damn busy. Oh, it's been oh crazy, God. man. Yeah. And it's going to get, it's going to get crazier. Yeah, it's okay. Like I, I was, um, I was really glad, you know, uh, I, I was sorry to miss uh, having Misty here, you know, in my mm-hmm. formative years. Um, I think Misty was the, you know, obviously there is no one tougher in this business having worked alongside her. And I think uh, Misty was the first Dallas police officer I ever saw someone make bleed. Uh, so that's a, you know, special place in my heart. Uh, God bless the State Fair of Texas. It's uh, different than, you know, probably not the advertisement the State Fair wants on on the podcast. But, um, but yeah, no, Misty, uh, I... I and, uh, you know, I owe her a lot for teaching me, um, a lot about, you know, this job and myself and, and, and watching her, um, you know, excel in a world that oftentimes is not friendly to, to female operators. Um, and, you know, no one that I know of ever looked at Misty Van Curen as a female operator. Misty was just one of us. Yeah. Uh, ne- never and, twice. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, you might. Yeah, yeah exactly. She, exactly. She was an operator. No, she, she, and she, she is. And, and, yeah. and, you know, a dear friend and, and, but I, I'll tell you, no, yeah, no one ever looked at her like that. Um, and so look, I hope, you know, we were just talking about this as we were warming mm-hmm. up, like, I didn't realize how good she was at the Irish goodbye after she ghosted us. And just yeah. one day she was here and the next day her emails were bouncing back, but you know, good for her. Yeah. Um, uh, we're going to get, we're going to get, she's actually not done. She, she's not done with this podcast. She's, uh, we have, uh, the, uh, Jan Easterling's episode that's going to come on. And then I told Misty during her summer breaks and the listener, they don't know yet. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to find out soon what's going on with, uh, the great Misty Van Curen. But during her summer breaks, I'm going to wear her ass out. On yeah, these She's you. got a lot of time on her hands good for you. So, uh, you decide you wanted to go to med school. Talk about that process. Where'd you go and yeah. just get into that? Yeah. You know, interestingly, um, when I was at Texas as an undergrad, you know, I did, um, pretty much every damn thing but study. Um, and, you know, I, I was in a very challenging degree program. And so I came out of uh, an undergrad 
out of undergrad with a, a, a couple of C's in biology and, you know, I think I had one in organic chemistry too. And the important to go stuff for doctors, yeah, thanks. Well, right, <laughs> right. It just goes to show you that none of that really matters. And so getting into medical school for me was, was you know, it's not like I had 35 offers. Um, and I remember, so my dad um, uh, ultimately passed away from early onset Alzheimer's disease and he was reasonably impaired by the time I got into medical school, um, although was still living at home and stuff like that. And I remember, you know, I was on the wait list at GW uh, for about a, a month or so as they were sort of sorting out the class and trying to figure out. And, you know, I had like some recommendation letters from some pretty heavy hitters um, and it didn't seem to matter at the time. Um, but I remember the day, you know, they always say like when you're applying to professional school, you get like a little envelope. You might as well start the cry, start the tears because nobody sends you like a small envelope to welcome you to medical school. Like you got to have a big envelope. So I remember the day the big envelope came, like I grabbed it from the mail from my parents' house, um, in Kensington, Maryland, where I, you know, house where I grew up in basically. And my dad and I walked into the kitchen and, you know, opened the envelope and jumped up and down like, holy shit, I was in. Um, and so, you know, I ended up, um, choosing to go to GW from a few options and, and, you know, luckily once I got to medical school, I learned how to be a real student. Um, probably cause I'd never really been pushed. Um, even though I was planned to at Texas and it was a challenge, um, but I'd never really been pushed, but I learned how to study. So when I came out of medical school into residency, like I had a number, you know, I had a lot more options open to me, um, then, but, uh, you know, GW was an incredible place to be a medical student. you living in DC was great. Cause I was home and, you know, my mom needed the help with my dad, but, um, but it was a great place to be a student. It actually was going to be a terrible place to be a surgical resident. Cause you know, like any job, you can't learn how to operate on people by watching somebody else do it. You've got to go to a place that, that knows how to train surgeons. And I, I know we're also going to spend some time talking about Parkland yep. um, in the, in the coming few minutes, but, but yeah, so that's how I ended up at GW and you know, it was a great place to go to school, a great medical education um, with, and again, you want to talk about incredible mentors um, to, surgeons who I became very close friends with, um, who really pushed me, you know, probably, and maybe, you know, other than like a football coach and things like that, were the first people to really push you beyond your comfort zone. And I think, you know, today they would be looked at as pariahs for some of their methods because they were hard on you and difficult. In fact, I remember, um, uh, Steve Evans, who's now, uh, you know, runs a large hospital system just outside of DC. But as I started my fourth year of medical school, I was winning some award at the med school and he put his arm around my mom and he told her, Hey, Hope, look, uh, if you need to find Alex for the next 30 days, like just call my office, my secretary, you, my secretary will likely know where he is, but you won't cause you're not going to see him for the next month. He's going to be, you know, buried. Uh, and, and look, um, much of, uh, Steve Evans, um, and then, you know, the late Jules Cahan, who was a surgeon, um, in one of our community sites who, uh, just an incredible guy. And he, you know, was no notorious for being brutal on the medical students and residents. But once you sort of made it through the crucible, he was a fan for life. And as my career developed, 
you know, he, he would oftentimes reach out in some way that you didn't expect before he passed away. And, um, and I remember I wrote one of my, you know, very first sort of academic papers that was published in a surgical journal. It was a big accomplishment, you know, and, um, I got a handwritten note from Dr. Cahan that said, you know, unsolicited, like, dear Alex, I saw your article. Congratulations, a momentous, you know, thing. I only wish you would have let me proofread it because you're missing a comma in the fourth <laughs> sentence on the fourth page. And I was like, this fucking guy, you know. Um, but, uh, but you know, a, a an advocate for those who made it through that crucible. And, and, and I hope that I, you know, live my life in the same way now for the people that I'm training and bringing up behind me. So. Well, when you're you're talking about hard nosed, tough trainers, you know, and, and and everything has changed, right? Even in policing, the 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 hard ass trainers that that I grew up with have changed from whenever Kent went through the police academy and he went through training, and then long before me, there was some hard old crusty trainers. But some of these officers, you're going into a a field, and you and you're going into a you you're going into a field of a, a profession. That you have to have ice in your veins, right? You have yeah. to remain calm. We're going to get into your calmness uh, later on. Kent, Kent's got a story. But it toughens you. If, if you can't take pressure from a controlled environment and somebody who you know deep down is, 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 a, is a mentor and is there to help you, man, when you get into the real life, the same we get out on the streets, shit is ten times worse and it's real. Oh, listen, now I, I would be remiss if I didn't at least put my own trainer up in that top 10, mm-hmm. a one Johnny Joe Tadlock, who I yeah, still Johnny. can't believe that they allow Johnny to train uh, rookies to this day. But, you know, I, I had Johnny as my trainer well past his hard Southeast days. Um, Love Johnny. Oh, just a great dude. And, and I hope we'll tell uh, the story, you know, at, 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 I'd like to say six feet, but we all know that's bullshit at five eleven, <laughs> and, uh, you know, 235 pounds, my, my foot chase record, uh, of one and O currently still stands with, uh, with the great Johnny Tadlock. Uh, it's probably better than Johnny's record, honestly. Oh, one no, I mean, yeah, one, I mean, one and O listen, yeah. I'm batting a hundred percent. Yeah, like, it's kind of hard to beat that. Yeah. Yeah. No, you can't. I, and in fact, I retired from the foot chase game <laughs> shortly thereafter, yeah. but, um, but yeah, it's a great story. Well worth it. Uh, well, hell, let's just tell it. Yeah. Get on it. So, uh, yeah. So, you know, when I was, I mean, the police department, you know, we started here and we'll talk about this, mm-hmm. but we started as civilians on the SWAT team and, and both Jeff Metzger and I, you know, one of the greatest partners and brothers and friends I could ask for. Um, and I, you know, ultimately went to the police academy at the suggestion of, of chief and leadership and things like that. It would just, and it was a great suggestion, but so when we got out and, um, they decided, you know, looked through the roster of training. I, I firmly believe they were like, well, we need to find these guys, some trainers, but you know, obviously we can't let them get killed. So, uh, Johnny was given pretty specific instructions and it was many a night where I was like, Hey, look, man, like we got to take somebody to jail tonight. Like I, I can't. Like the whole point in doing this is to know how to do this. Like, and I, I like, I, Johnny, like, come on, man. We can't, I don't want to diagram any more wrecks. Like, can we please go to jail tonight? <laughs> so we get this call. I'm driving, Johnny's riding. We get this call for a guy who has stolen dinner from the Dallas Chop House in downtown. Nice restaurant. Yeah, nice, nice place. Yeah. You know, I've never eaten in there, but not the only time I've ever been in there. And the, the call sheet says that the manager is chasing the dude down the street so i'm like 
Okay, so we drive down there. We're in downtown, and I see the guy, the suspect, and I wish, you know, it's a podcast, you can't see me, but he clearly has something wrong with his legs because he's, like, gimping down the block, you know? Mm. And I see the manager, like, at a very slow jog behind. So I look over to Johnny, and I'm like, look, man. He's mine. This is I'm my like, time. I'm like, bro. Ain't many of these that I like. I know I've got in the tank. Okay, let's be honest. But this guy's mine. Like, so I'm gonna pull up next to him. I'm gonna put the car in park. I'm gonna jump out. We're gonna do a. You know, I don't know what you can you can you. Call, is it still a Chinese fire drill? Like, what's the we're we're rotation uh, rapid. It's probably not okay I, to say I, anymore. I, I, but like, you I know what I mean? No, I know, yeah, yeah, like we got just, out, switched sides, and so I start jogging behind this dude, and I'm like, "Hey, man, look, like, just stop." You know, come on, man. He won't. He's running and gimping along and running and gimping along. So uh, I'm trying to make the podcast match the paperwork. So uh, I used a bounce <laughs> displacement technique to to uh, to get him onto the ground right in front of like where the AT&T building is now. So there are tons of people out there. Yeah. It's like 6 p.m. Everybody's like, oh, you motherfucker. Like, leave the guy alone. You know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. So. You know, and and the other thing is like I can't help but laugh because Johnny's laughing and I'm laughing. Anyway, get the dude in custody. Take and and it's like you know it's like a hundred and twenty five dollars worth of food, so he's got to go to jail. Yeah, take him to jail, and he you know bless his heart like tough life living on the streets, but he smelled horrific. And I was like Johnny, something's rotten on this dude. Like this is what I do. Like I professionally like there's yeah. a problem. We haven't just found it. So we get to jail. And, uh, and the jail lady like takes the nurse takes his shoes off and both his feet are like necrotic and rotten. And and then she, you know, of course, like as everybody listening to this podcast knows, like she takes one look at that and they're like, nah, mm -mm, that put his shoes back on to park when you go. And you just started doing surgery right there. <laughs> no, but this, the, he, he, hear the rest. So this is at this point, it's like midnight, you know? Uh, so we like field release him and drop him at Parkland. I go home. I'm like, man, poor bastard. Like, you know, so the very next morning I'm on call. Like I'm the surgeon on call for the hospital. And, uh, you know, obviously like I've showered and changed clothes. I'm out of uniform. I'm in, you know, Parkland stuff. And I sit down, we have a morning meeting where the residents go over like what's been admitted overnight and what's your first case is. And they say, okay, uh, first case is this, uh, you know, 50 something year old guy was arrested by the police department last night after, you know, stealing dinner at a restaurant. And, you know, I was like, oh shit, like his legs fell off overnight. Then they said like, (laughs) well, no, they're like, uh, they're like, he's on the books for bilateral feet amputations. Mm. And I was like, well, shit, this is about to get complicated. So I went in to see the guy. And you could tell, like, he's looking at me like, now, just a minute. Like, this looks like the fat bastard that ran me down last night. <laughs> Are you like, wearing your white doctor coat? Yeah, I mean, I'm dressed like a doctor, bro. He has no, no, like, identifying markings that indeed. <laughs> so I could tell his wheels were turning. And I was like, all right, man, look, like, uh, yeah, same guy. Like, that's my... I've got kind of a unique side hustle, and the guy those, wouldn't let me do the operation. One of those bad adult movies where uh, <laughs> yeah, the, yeah. the police officer is also the doctor and the yeah, plumber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah. That, you're that guy and the plumber. Yeah, yeah the guy was like, nope, he wouldn't. He wouldn't sign the papers. So I had to get somebody Are else to come be, cut his feet off. He, yeah. Really? Yeah, he, he wouldn't do it. He was like, hell. He thought, you know, I mean, look, like obviously it's some mental issues, but he was like, 
Hell no. Like no way. Yeah, not that bad. Yeah, not yeah, <laughs> nope. I'm good. Like I'm mm-mm. Did you no. did you like slowly pull the oh, white, man, white coat so open and had your uniform done, yeah. dude. But yeah, like hey. <laughs> Still yeah. had a gun belt on. Yeah, you know, had the class they had on. Yeah, with it's, it. really, it's really weird. You know what? That there have been a couple of times where these roles have crossed, and that's um, badass. Yeah, it was fun. So poor guy. Like I hope he's okay somewhere. Probably well, not. He's but. probably not running from cops. Not anymore. But um, I want to get into Parkland Hospital. Yeah, you you came here in uh, two thousand one. Yeah. All right. I want to give the listeners a little background on Parkland Hospital. They. You know, there it's a historic hospital here in uh, in Dallas, and um, there's actually a cool movie made called Parkland, and it's got it's it's about the perspective of uh, the Kennedy assassination when they brought uh, President Kennedy in there, and they have uh, you know it's a perspective from the hospital and the doctors and the roles that they played. It's a, it's a pretty good movie. The original hospital opened in 1894 in a little wooden building located near Oaklawn. Uh, the name Parkland came from the land on which the hospital was built. 1913, the first hosp- first brick building was hospital was erected in Texas and replaced the old building. 1954, Parkland moved to Harry Hines Boulevard. In 2015, Parkland opened a new state-of-the-art facility. Five individuals from the Kennedy assassination in 1963 either died or were pronounced dead at this hospital. President Kennedy himself, Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, Abraham Zapruder, who filmed the uh film the assassination and also the witness lady in red uh gene hill she she also uh, died in parkland parkland was so it's so rich in history and you think of dallas think of the big hospitals in dallas you think of parkland no question so what was it like whenever you got there and and uh it, why did why did you pick did you pick to go to parkland yeah so man i'll tell you when you 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 know the way you sort of end up training at a place um is a match right so you put your list in one through whatever and the programs put their list in one through whatever and then a computer sort of puts you in the same place um i i thought i was going to end up training in boston initially and i ranked that program number one and parkland number two until um excuse me, until I came to visit and I met uh, some residents um, who were, you know, current residents in the program and became um, dear friends and still friends to this day. And I realized like, man, these guys could do anything. And they um, were not phased by a single thing. Um, And, and, you know, when I think about the kind of surgeon I'd like to hope that I am, um, you know, it's a lot like being on a SWAT team. Like you have to manage your own um, emotional response to whatever the stimulus is. And, And being a surgeon is no different. And so when I met these guys and saw them and saw how they carried themselves and saw how they, um, you know, responded um, and other people responded to them in the hospital. I knew this is where I was coming, and I went and changed my list um, the very next day. And, and here I ended up. It, that was way before I knew much, you know, not any, much about the role that Parkland has played in this community for, you know, more than 100 years. Um, and still, to some degree, plays today. You know, there are other hospitals now that um, 
And certainly, you know, we as the police department have had um, other hospitals take great care of mm-hmm. some of our friends and brothers and sisters. But but I will tell you that, you know, uh, in terms of a place to train and to learn, you know, like uh, uh, coming out of med school is kind of coming out of the police academy. Like, you know, the nuts and bolts, but you don't really know how to be the police. Like you come out of medical school, you know a lot about a lot of things, but you don't really know how to be a doctor and learning how to be one at a place like Parkland um, back in the day was, was, you know, a very special thing to me. Uh, And even though I'm not there every day anymore, um, I still have a very warm place in my heart and it's still, you know, medical home uh, for me and and in many ways for us. Um, But yeah, it's a, it is a, you know, I often say that when you were in this town and something terrible was happening, if you could just get to the lands, like, you would be okay. Um, and, and we've proven that over and over and over and over again. Um, and, and in some, you know, in many ways, like, I hope uh, that it that it never loses that focus, although, you know, it's sort of gone up and down over the years and had its issues like everywhere else. But, you know, I think the one thing that, that, that I hope Parkland never loses sight of is that its fundamental role in this community is to care for people that have no other place to turn. Uh, and, 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 you know, whether that means you're shot in the belly or you have some disease that you don't, you can't have cared for, like that's where you go. Um, and so I hope the, you know, the citizens of this county and of the nation, like, understand, like, we got to have places like that. Um, and it, it is, a, it was a pretty sacred place to train. And like, you know, I, I mean, talk about like, you know, the things you do uh, in your career, not give the listeners like a little secret. Uh, we used to, before, like all of the imaging was on x-rays, you know, it was on electronics, you'd get like a film, you know? And so if you did something that was you know, jacked up or whatever, you'd be like, oh shit, like this film can't see the light of day. Like mm-hmm. go fix the mistake and take care of the patient and the film would need to disappear. Like, you know, they're about to tear down the old Parkland structure mm-hmm. and I'd hate to think of how many medical mysteries are about to get solved when oh. they like dig up, you know, all these things from maladies from years past. But, um, but no, like all kidding aside, like a tremendous institution um, and, and, you know, a real gem here in Dallas. They actually might find the, who the shooter from the Grassy Knoll was. When <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Joe. You talk about the movie, like the guys. So um, Jim Carrico, who was the legendary chair of surgery at Parkland for a long time, who passed away my first year of residency. But I spent um, basically the entire month of December uh, taking care of him as he was dying of, of metastatic colon cancer. But mm. Jim's family was upset at the way he was portrayed because he was the quintessential uh, gentleman surgeon. Dr. Carrico was um, and, and a real legend in our business. And he was portrayed like a bit of a womanizer in the movie, which was which couldn't have been farther from the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's Hollywood. They've got to make yeah, it sensational. sensational. Yeah. But, you know, getting a chance to train with legends from that day like um, – uh, Dr. Carrico and, and Dr. McClelland, who, you know, were the guys who treated the president. And, you know, McClellan worked worked at, into his 90s. And even though he was not doing surgery um, very often, uh, you know, you would, if you did some crazy case, like you would call Dr. McClellan and say, hey, look, sir, like, 
you know, I've got this case brewing. I've net, you're the only, you were the last one to do something like this. And so if you knew, like you were in the operating room at Parkland and you saw Dr. Mack in scrubs, you're like, Oh shit, something bad's happening. Like you got to follow him and see like what's going on. Um, I remember I had to, uh, one of the plastic surgeons and I did uh, a case called a hemicorpectomy, um, which was like, which is not was, is a sort of last ditch effort to save someone with terrible pelvic disease. And it's, it's what it sounds like. It's cutting a man in half. Like you cut the man in half and the top half stays and the bottom half goes. I saw like that at a magic show yeah, one time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Just like, I mean, it's, I David wish it was that simple. Like it takes, you know, a lot of time and planning, whatever. Well, it's, it's not real when they do it in the magic yeah, show. Yeah, no, no. They come back together. Yeah. They come back together. Connect. Every time. Every time. <laughs> Every time. But um, I did one uh, and, and I called Dr. Mack and I was like, hey, can you swing over here? And, you know, here he comes like this, this sort of deified figure coming down the hallway like 90 something years old changing into scrubs to come look and i was like oh shit i don't ever want to do that again just but, doves flying behind him yeah, the whole like, day. Yeah, yeah the whole nine the whole nine but the you slow mo walk getting a chance to see uh legends of parkland like that uh in action really helps shape the way that i think i am today so well i would imagine there's probably a lot of young surgeons that look that feel the same about you well i don't I, know they probably you know call me some kind of name behind that but i'd like to think that like in my time there you know i've i've i helped some guys uh get better at this and learn how to do it the right way so what is the highest role that you reached over there at park i was the chief of trauma there for uh for almost a decade um and ran the you know the privilege of my surgical career to run the program there which is made up of nothing but people who you know, want to do the right thing for other human beings and, and this community. Um, and so to lead that team, uh, for that long, um, was fantastic. Um, and look, I hope, you know, it's had, like I said, it's had its issues and the relationship between Parkland and the medical school is always a little strained, uh, after, you know, its inception Two organizations that are dependent upon each other for success. I hope they can find their way back to, to that symbiotic relationship and, um, you know, and, and it can maintain being that, you know, no, no kidding beacon on the hill, um, that everybody in this town needs. So there's several different kinds of doctors, right? I mean, you can, you can specialize in a a number of things. Why surgery? Yeah, it wasn't surgery specifically for me, but trauma surgery, which, um, which did it for me, um, you know, for, and again, like I'm about to say something that's probably going to offend any ER doctors that listen to this, including my my boys that I work in this, you know, tactical medicine unit with. But, um, you know, I had a pretty robust experience before I went to medical school. And when I was sitting in the ER on my rotation as a fourth year med student, you know, I wanted to be taking care of people who were like at the end of their rope and had real problems and fix them. And, and, you know, somebody would get shot in the belly or the chest and the trauma surgeon would come down and like tell the ER doctor, Hey man, thanks. Got it. We'll take it from here. And I was like, Oh, that's weird. Like, you, you know, you're good at the first five minutes of every problem, but then, you know, some specialist comes down and takes mm. over a few and gets the person back on their feet. And then, you know, some dude comes into the air with a heart attack and the cardiologist comes down and is like, hey, man, thanks a lot. Like, I'll take it from here. And I was like, well, God damn it. Like, that's, you know, this might not be all it's cracked up to be. Um, and so for me, the idea of having 
a skill set that very few people have and the ability to apply it under really adverse conditions when people are just, you know, in the, you know, worst days of their life and get them back to their families was something I couldn't pass up. And that's where I ended up. So that sounds really intimidating. Like <laughs> I want to be the guy who walks in and tells another doctor, Hey, it's my turn. No, nah, right? it's not, it's not intimidating, but you know, the thing about a, a, a big place, big hospital where you get the chance to specialize is, you know, people are good at different things. And I, I you know, I always tell, make fun of Jeff, you know, very good nature, but I'm like, Hey bro, like I'm going to take care of all the bleeding and, you know, injuries and guts. And if anybody has the sniffles, like, I mean, if you wouldn't mind, like, <laughs> that's what sniffles, you, yeah, yeah, if you wouldn't mind, that's what you're good at. And, and you know, of course that I always get a, a certain finger shot back in my face when we have this conversation, but, but all kidding aside, like you just do the things you're good at, you know? And, you know, emergency physicians are amazing at the first, you know, few minutes of every problem and think about how broad that is and what they have yeah. to know to do that. <clears throat> but, you know, they'd be utterly lost if they had to open someone's abdomen and rearrange a couple of things and get some things back in working order. And that's okay. Like just a different, different training. So that's how I ended up here and came here to learn to be a surgeon and learn to be a trauma surgeon. And that's what I did. And you kept going through door after door after door. Yeah, man. Clearly. And, yeah. And so this, this, the whole reason we're sitting here, um, you know, in the middle of my training, I was going to do like a, a sabbatical of sorts, which is very common for surgeons going into academic careers, um, where you do like a research ex or, a, you know, some sort of experience. And I was going to revitalize the way surgeons do pre-hospital care. And, um, and so, you know, like I, and the, the other fellow during my two years, uh, this was his project and he couldn't, you know, he, he had issues at home and couldn't really be available the way, you know, you need to be available to do this. And so they said, Hey, will you, um, go meet with the SWAT team commander and see what it is exactly that they want. Um, and I went and had lunch with Bobby Owens mm -hmm. and, um, you know, uh, the, the rest is history. And I, I oftentimes, even to this day, like when something crazy happens in my career, you know, I'll send a picture to Bobby and I'll say, Hey, you made this monster motherfucker. Like yeah, you yeah. gotta, you gotta own it now. So, so um, get into that more about the whole thing about starting with, with SWAT and, and, and Lieutenant Owens and, yeah. and how, how did that whole thing come? Like explain how the whole thing even started, man. So, um, so, you know, Bobby and I go to lunch and he lays out sort of what he was interested in, in terms of having, you know, a resource, a doctor, a medical capability for the SWAT team. And you got to understand this was 2004, you know, now it's commonplace in the United States. Like it was unheard of. So uh, nobody else was. Uh, no, I mean, certainly there were a few dudes that had done this in small communities. And in fact, the guy who was, you know, sort of excuse me, seen as the nation's expert in 2004, we went, you know, once this got up and running, like I had them send me to like a tactical medicine class at the time. And I think we'd been on the team for like a year at this point before we went for like some formal outside training. And, um, and, and, you know, like, as you know, the SWAT team here is pretty busy. Like we're doing something almost every day. And so we talked to the guy like, Hey, 
how many call outs did you run, you know, last week? And he was like, last week. And I'm like, yeah. Like, he's like, well, I've, I think in the last like five years I've been on like seven yeah. call outs. And I'm like, man, I was on seven, like in the three, <laughs> seven operations in the four days before I packed to come on this trip, like just different. Um, <clears throat> but, but so the way it started is look, I had lunch with Bobby and then, we sort of laid it out and he said, look, why don't you come to training? And I went to training a few times and then I, you know, he's like, we're going to give you a, a pager, which I always laugh That's about. Badass. Like, gangster. Yeah. yeah sure. You know, player. You know, you got to have a chain every, on it. Every gangster's got to have a pager. Cause that's how we yeah. used to call, get called out. And, um, and then look like one thing led to another. And I remember, you know, I was like, uh, fat like 290 something pounds uh, you know i've been a surgical resident for three years at the time and wasn't really like you don't have a lot of time to pay attention to your like fitness and nutrition and i was a mess and um i remember like bobby walking me in front of detail at central you know in the swat detail room and you know now guys who i you know consider to be dear friends and brothers but like you've who got are some of them yeah, I mean, like, you know, I've got, like, uh, like the old school SWAT, you know, I had, you know, certainly Kelvin Johnigan, who became my, you know, one of my closest friends in town, and like a true brother and family member to me, um, and, and a number, you know, Tom Seibel and those guys, but like, you know, there were also guys who obviously were brothers and teammates, like, um, like you know steve claggett and mm-hmm. robert cockrell and real legends of the dallas swat those unit. dudes were so big back then i, I don't i don't they know were, if it's just nostalgia or, or the fact that i was young but they seemed like they were all 10 feet tall and, and just 100 percent. and like dudes. look i mean some of those guys are now 10 feet wide yeah, um, as yeah. well as we all are like our old <laughs> but like happens. yeah shit it's no big deal but i mean literally those dudes were like you there was you could not like they had an aura around them for sure uh, unbelievable and i remember like bobby takes me up on the stage you know in the detail room is like this is our new doctor and you can see like these guys look pour at some sugar on me and starts bath. just yeah. playing yeah, yeah exactly like i'm like bobby you don't know that my uh my theme music comes on but but i go up there and i remember steve claggett looking at me and i could tell something fucked up was about to come out of his mouth yeah. you know yeah and he says he's good at that yeah i mean of course and he it's says look gift. like uh what on earth thinks makes you think that you're qualified to do this? And I, you know, I, I, I didn't have a really good answer, but I, you know, only thing I could do to sort of lower the tension in the room was look around and be like, well, I don't know, but I don't really see too many other, you know, mofos up here signing up for this. I'm the only one, so I think by default I'm qualified. Everybody laughed. The ice was broken, and here we are, twenty something years later, or you know, almost twenty years later. And so, you know, it's interesting because it started um, with that, and it built and built and built and built, and then, you know, I should. It's not the way you start a program for a big municipal law enforcement agency because even you know, here we are, twenty some, almost twenty years later, and. You know, we still deal with the way it started and the fact that, like, there wasn't really an agreement or paperwork at the time. Uh, and so, like, I remember um, uh, Tom got the quartermaster to issue Jeff and I badges uh, mm-hmm. that said SWAT medical. This was before we were the police. Because, you know, we were, like, coming through scenes and needed to be able to get in and stuff like that. 
And my first badge had the badge number M001 on it. And so after one of the times where like some horrific shit happened and had to go to court, some lady from the from county court called me and said, is your badge number M001? And I was like, I think so, you know? And she said, well, that shows to be a dead city marshal. Mm. Uh, so that can't be right. So I went to Tom and I was like, hey, bro, how'd you do this? And, you know, it was a classic Tom Seibel production. Like, he had just done it. Just like, got it done. Yeah, yeah, just got it done. Don't ask any more questions. And listen, like, I have, in in the ensuing, like, time, I've, I'm have i proud to say, like, I'm Seibel trained at that. Like, I've just gotten some things done. <laughs> but sometimes when you go back to find the paperwork behind it, um, it didn't exactly match. So It's going to be like that film at the Parkland when they, when they tear that down. Yeah, no, <laughs> as you're going to find it, like, holy yeah. shit, this is how they There's did no that. paperwork. Yeah. records for Cybel's production. But you sure. know, like we started this and we did this um, and essentially it was never approved at higher than the SWAT lieutenant level. <laughs> and uh, and when, um, when the Oak Park Drive, Oak Park Circle shooting happened and all those guys got shot uh, at the same time, you know, the post-incident press conference, Chief Conkle, um, who... Man, I'll tell you, like, what a great human being, and and a and a, you know, I owe him a lot for letting me do this and and supporting it. But you know, he had never heard of this program, and at the post incident press conference at the hospital, they were like, "Chief," they were like, "Uh, we heard the new SWAT teams doctors were on the scene, like, and took care of these guys, like, great job. Who are they? How? When? When did this program start? Like." How, you know, cue the deaf leopard. And he was like, and, uh, and, and, you know, he, you could tell, like, you go back and look, he was like, uh, thanks a lot. I'll get back to you guys. Circle. And, you know, yeah, let me come back to that. And that was the first afternoon, you know, now of many times I've been summons to the sixth floor, like Mm -hmm. who the fuck are you and where have you come from? And, you know, Bobby and I had to go answer some tough questions together. Um, but you know, he, he obviously turned out to be, uh, it's turned out, I think. Well, that flawlessly leads to my next question here. Um, did you ever run into any interference, like any any issues with getting this thing going? Was anybody trying to to ever stop it more than than Claggett just scaring the crap out of you in front of all the other giants? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think over the years there have been folks who have been incredibly supportive, and there have also been people who just didn't get it. Um, and you know, I there were a number of times where. You know, I've gone home and been like, ah, damn, what else do I have to do? Um, And in fact, a former administrative lieutenant uh, in this unit who will go nameless. um, Call him Voldemort. Yeah, he'll he'll go nameless. uh, One time said to me, you know, I'm not really sure why we even have doctors on this team because, you know, we don't need you guys. And, and treated us as such and made some things difficult on us, you know, in terms of vehicles and equipment and things like that. And then, you know, like I look around now and here, you know, I, I, I would not, I would, you know, not wish this on anyone I care about or even don't care about. Like, you know, I look at the number of guys who are still here and hanging out with their families because we were able to do something for them um, in, in a, in a time of, you know, great crisis. Um, and I, you know, think like it's, it's also solidified my 
you know, sort of belief never to, um, be slowed down by small thinkers. And you got a lot of people out, not necessarily here in the police department, but like in the world who want to play small ball and, and be jealous or, you know, not, um, support something that needs to be supported simply because they can. And like, I've long since like run those folks over. And, and, you know, I, I said to this individual who Voldemort, Mm -hmm. um, who, who go nameless. I said, look, man, like, uh, I'm still going to be here when you're gone. Um, because I'm going to deliver a value added product to this organization and I'm going to make it, um, you know, the, the program that everybody else wants, and he was like, oh, bullshit, you know, whatever. And, and, you know, that guy's like, doesn't work here anymore. So <laughs> I guess the proof's in the pudding, sir. Yeah. Well, you, you, he asked, well, why, why, why do we even need you guys? Look around, the lives save, fucker. I mean, really, I, and, and that stuff, one thing that gets me, I hate the old, this is the way we've always done it mentality. Oh, it, that, that kills progress. You, it, you it, can ask my guys about that. I, I, I hate I, it flip tables apparently well I've i mean my that's discuss, fact but. that's actually fact <laughs> but but i think you know to me like uh this is a really incredible niche and 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 the reason i'm in my current you know real job for lack of a better word is that like the ability to mix and to to work at that nexus of great medicine law enforcement public health national security like that's where i sit every day right now and so like you know i mean there are things that have gone on in this community quietly, like the Dallas police hemorrhage control program. You know, when, when I came here, you know, we didn't have anything like that. And now every one of our officers carries a tourniquet and combat cause, and they have saved the lives of literally hundreds of people in this city. Um, you know, not to mention a few of our own, but like Mm -hmm. those sorts of things, you know, come are an offshoot of, of integrating, you know, my guys into the department and the program and um and look like we've set the standard um you know for this before there even was one so i you know i'm I'm proud of that and that Voldemort can look i hope he's listening yeah you should be proud of that because like you said that that tourniquet program i mean that it, hell there was there was live saves last week with tourniquets from officers and first responders in the field Literally every week, Joe, we get notified that, like, you know, we've had another tourniquet deployment, which is, you know, both great and, like, man, we need to probably do something <laughs> about that in this town. But yeah, it might be. But, um, but uh, you know, I, I, I'm I'm incredibly proud of 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 the way that d- this department has, you know, embraced me and us, and, and honestly, like, am thankful. Um. You know, look, like, I'm old, like, I've been doing this a long time now, like, being on callback every day for almost 18 years is a, is a challenge, um, and it's exhausting on people who, you know, I work with, people who I love, um, my children, um, and, 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 you know, like, it's, it's, I only do it still because of you guys because the guys who i you know consider family and 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 know that like you know i this place has given me incredible opportunities um and i'm not done giving back yet well go ahead do you ever think that you are done have has it ever come across your mind like why am i still doing this have you ever faltered in, in your your 
willingness to just do this? You know, it's interesting. Um, after after uh, July 7th, um, you know, and I'm incredibly proud of my, not only my SWAT teammates for the way we responded that night, but, you know, there were two of my docs responded uh, that night as well to other parts of the incident. And afterwards, you know, we used to wear these patches that say SWAT medic on them. And then the decision was made to have everybody in the same team patch. Like we're all going to wear the SWAT patch, one SWAT unit, one SWAT team, like we're doing it. So very recently, like some guys went to one of my younger dudes and were like, why are you wearing that patch? You haven't earned the right to wear that. And I was like, God damn, like, no, it's serious business, man. Man, I'm like, look, like, these guys give of themselves for essentially no compensation and come out here every time with you, whether it's training or operations. Like, I mean, what are we doing? Like, let's focus on, on like, things that matter and the patches. You know, I think, you know, I'm pretty comfortable that I've earned the right to wear it over after 18 years of doing this and in countless, you know, situations where I've shown that I will perform under the same pressure that those guys will. And, and so it's things like that, like, but I've never once said, nah, I'm done. Like I'm going to turn all my shit in. Like, I just can't. I, and honestly, like probably to the detriment of a relationships and jobs and family and you know how it is. I mean, you've been there, bro. And I, I tell everybody, you can either be good in SWAT or you can be a good father, but I had a really hard time doing both. Yeah, and and I, I felt like I, I really kind of, I wouldn't say I was great at it, but I feel like I, I pooped on my family quite a bit for it. And I, I, re, I regret the way I handled that aspect of it, but not the fact that I did it. You don't have a choice. Like when, when you're doing this the right way, um, you don't have a choice, but to have your family pay the price with you. Um, and, and it's, it's even more complicated in my opinion. I'm so glad we're focusing, you know, refocusing on officer wellness and the toll that this takes. But like, you know, look, uh, I have seen and been a part of some pretty intense things as a part of the, you know, police department. And now in my quote unquote real job at DHS, like I've had the same and like you come home and you know, you're not yourself for a minute and it's your kid's that pay the price, the ultimate price. And, and, you know, your spouse, loved one, whatever, like people in your life. Um, and so, you know, like a challenge, a challenge. And, and so, you know, look like, uh, never have I once thought about throwing in the towel, but there are days where you're like, God damn, like this is, you know, enough is enough. Yeah. Especially when you got the Voldemort's of the world that just, they don't get it. And they, and they, and they, they want to crap on, on, on the achievements and the lives. Say that 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 just, that infuriates me. I just yeah, me too. But I mean, again, like I said, Joe, like don't play small, you yeah. know. And this is, you know, I I um look like I'm sure we're going to talk about Carlton. Yep. In a little bit, I, it's hard for me um, to to see him in a wheelchair. Still, here it is, all these years later, like. Ah, damn, if I, maybe if I'd done a few things differently, like the outcome would have been different, you know? Um, but it, it always is a stark reminder. Like you wouldn't even be in that wheelchair if, if we hadn't been there. And, and, and I always 
every time I get down about, you know, whatever, which happens, I always think like, hey, man, like, don't forget why you're here. Like, never, ever, ever forget the why behind what you do. And and if I can be in a place to send one of you guys home to your family instead of, you know, somewhere else, um, I'm going to do it every time. You mentioned Lieutenant Marshall. Let's let's talk about the Hollywood Avenue incident. Yeah, walk us through. Yep. Yeah, doc, your 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 uh, partner in crime, Doctor Metzger, his earlier episode. He he spoke on it from his perspective. Yeah, I'd li- I want to get your perspective on, on yeah, that whole so, incident. You know, um, in the beginning of this, and that was certainly in the relative beginning, we did a lot of this stuff together, and then we both got busier, and we both got you know, more responsibility at work and jobs. And, and we don't, we couldn't, you know, we don't get to run a lot of ops together anymore, but it's funny because every time I talk to him, it's like, and, and that's almost every day still. It's like, oh, damn, I miss you, bro. I don't see you enough, you know? Um, and so that day, you know, big federal um, warrant, which, you know, obviously we've wised up now, but we, we always didn't have the best of luck doing shit early in the morning. Um, and, and we've gotten smarter, but, you know, um, go out to the location. Briefing was uneventful. Um, and when, when Carlton got shot, Jeff and I were both about, I'd say 15 feet away, kind of behind this big tree in the front yard on, on Hollywood Avenue and, and had kind of moved from the front of the APC to behind the tree, better cover and vantage point. Um, and when Carlton went down and we heard officer down calls and calls for medic, you know, first of all, like really important, the reason we're integrated into the team is because we didn't wait for anybody to, you know, bring him to us. Like we started moving in that direction. But, like, I never heard a gunshot, and I think many people there, I don't know what Jeff said, I haven't listened to his episode, but I think many people out there didn't realize Carlton had been shot uh, through the window. And um, and so we met uh, the guys who were dragging him away from the window at the other window. And, you know, now, like, looking back on it, uh, I wish we would have, you know, it would have been a much sexier story tactically to drag him another 10 feet behind the APC and had all the cover in the world. But instead we had some bushes and a bunch of dudes with rifles and he, he was on his back and his eyes were open and, um, and he looked like he tried and I still couldn't tell what happened. Like he had a little bit of blood in the corner of his mouth. I couldn't tell if he'd been hit in the face with a tool or what. There was a lot of things going on. And, and, you know, behind me, you could hear like the mayhem that was going on at the structure. And it was, you know, we were right there. Um, and so, you know, he looked like he tried to take a breath and a, and look like when I say this, a huge rush of blood, like, remember I'm a surgeon fellas, like my huge rush of blood and your huge rush of blood are probably different amounts. Yeah. And I was like, Oh shit. Like something has a fucking hole in it. That's, not supposed to. And I pulled his collar protector down. You could see a a big wound in his neck and it became very clear that he had lost. He wasn't able to maintain his own airway. Um, and you know, we weren't long on options out there. Um, and so had to, 
very quickly um, do some surgery to open his windpipe and put a breathing tube in um, in an area that had just had a gunshot wound. And so, you know, it's wild because I've been a part of several police shootings. I've never been in one myself, but I always hear about people describing, you know, sort of that cone of concentration that comes and you lose your ability to process what's around you. And, um, and I, you know, remember, uh, being solely focused on his neck and airway to get that airway. And once we got it, which was pretty quick, we put an IV into Carlton, got him some pain medicine, even though he was unconscious. And we were literally sitting there on the ground waiting for, um, an ambulance to come give us, you know, pick us up and take us to the trauma center. And, you know, you're like, holy shit, did that just happen? And the whole thing was essentially reflexive. Like, he falls. We know how to respond because of the great training we've had with this unit and this department. Um, he gets taken care of. And before, you know, the ambulance is even probably out the door of the fire station, like, he's got an airway reestablished. He's alive. He's got a pulse. Like, and we got the bleeding stopped. And we're soon to be on the way to the hospital. So, and, you know, like, I remember... <clears throat> looking across at Jeff and being like, what? Holy shit. Like, did we just do that? On the side of a house. Oh, yeah. yeah like, that, in the bushes, you know? Yeah. And, I, and I subsequently found out, like, you know, the way you perform a cricothyroidotomy, like the procedure to, mm -hmm. to put a, an airway. Yeah, everybody knows that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For all the listeners. For all the I've doctor done listeners many, out there. Lots of research. Yeah, as you that. should. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the way you do it is, you know, you can't usually see very well. It's usually done by feel, in my opinion. And so, you know, the four or five operators with weapon mounted lights behind us, like pointing lights at, you know, the neck, but also the back of my head. Like I was like, man, I trust you dudes, but Hey, we're good. Yeah, like, yeah. You guys can, you know, put those it's weapons. 6am. I can see. Yeah. 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 We're good. Like, um, but, but yeah, I mean, and then, you know, the aftermath of that and, and, you know, we took Carlton to one of the other trauma centers cause we were close. Um, in the aftermath of watching his care and then having him transferred over to rehab at Zale, all of the community support that came in to help him in his recovery. And then of course, like watching his house get rebuilt, mm -hmm. um, you know, one of the emotional did, uh, did Jeff talk about crying in his episode? He did not. <laughs> so the extreme home makeover thing comes around for Carlton and yeah. I was really uh, grateful to play a role in that. One of the most emotional weeks in my career. Um, and when we, you know, shit, like if you don't cry during that, like you're heartless. So, but every time, you know, you'd tear up at the thing, like the cameras would come flying in your face. <laughs> of course. Yeah. So I told the producers, I'm like, look, like you sons of bitches show me crying. Like we're going to fight. I'm tough. Yeah. yeah, well, yeah. I'm tough. Like I'm the stoic tough one. Jeff, I guess, didn't issue any such threats or edicts. So <laughs> during the show, <laughs> every time they needed like an emotional tear, they cut to Jeff crying. So like. People all over America, you know, after the morning after that show aired, I had like 50 people asking me to help raise their kids all over the United States messages and all that. And, and they were like, and tell your boy to toughen up. Like, which you know, if anybody <laughs> knows Jeff, he is the least emotional person. 100% ever like, and the best dude in the world, yeah. like a great partner and friend. Um, and I'm, you know, I couldn't literally, I say this to him, uh, you know, routinely now, like, I couldn't have done this 
without him we feel that way about each other but i also tell him like man they, they took the hearts out of the you know he came i started in 04 he came in 05 i'm like man they took the hearts out after the 05 models like they just we all say that like you couldn't have done it without him too so. well i know <laughs> I, I'm, I, I'm aware well his episode we're recording here today right and we and and all the listeners hear me say i have several on the shelf right yeah. Even even Chief Kowalski with Bob Owens co-hosting sitting there, oh, wow. and uh, I know you're you know, you'll be interested in that one. But Doctor Metzger's is actually releasing today. Oh, it, good! It, it's done. Kennedy got it done, and uh, yeah, hell, it's I, I forgot how it sounds because it's been so long since we yeah. we've recorded it. But he, yeah, he he he, it, the feeling's very mutual. Between, oh, listen, man, between y'all two. I would do, and I I will say this: I would do anything for him uh, today, tomorrow, whatever he is. Um, Truly, uh, you know, we are very different um, people, but the perfect uh, yin and yang, in my opinion, yep. to, to get this done in a way um, to build a program that's going to have a meaningful impact on this place forever. And it has. You just described a uh, an impact that was meaningful, and, and we're going to get into some more. But I do want to ask you, when you're on this team, you're – you're, you're part of a team and you're part of a family and you have very close friends, right? When you're working in, in, in a hospital, in the ER, most of the people you work on are complete strangers. You don't have an emotional connection. You don't have a friendship connection, right? Or a family mm-hmm. uh, feel to, to the people that you work on. You go in and do your, do, you do your business and you save their life or you do all you can do. And that's some of the people you never see again. Mm-hmm. Whenever you have a teammate or a brother or sister or a family member go down r- right in front of you, how does that, you know, you're, yes, you're highly trained, you're cool under pressure, but how does the human side, how do you stop that from overwhelming you so you can't, you, it affects your job? Yeah. I, you know, look, like I pride myself on caring for every person that I'm privileged to be responsible for Mm -hmm. um, in any setting to care for them like they are my brother, sister, family member, teammate. Like that is the standard that I ascribe to and try to strive for, for everybody. And I tell, you know, my trainees, the residents that I work with or the new guys on the team, like, look, I don't really care what you fuck up. Like, number one, I can probably fix it. But mm-hmm. number two, like, I don't care what you fuck up. Like, if you do it because you're trying to take care of another human being. And this happens. Somebody gets their feelings hurt over the way a resident spoke to him. Like, I did that a few times as a resident, as you can imagine. No. Yeah, I might have had that conversation mm-hmm. with my boss uh, a couple of times. But, like, it's all about the why. Right. Like, and if you're doing it to be an asshole, like inexcusable, but if you're doing it because you believe in your heart of hearts, you're doing the right thing. You're taking care of somebody like I can work with that. I can work with that. Same thing to answer the question you asked, like you focus on the task at hand. And I think there's probably, you know, I've had a, uh, been blessed in this job to train with some pretty incredible dudes who've done pretty incredible things for this nation. Um, and, and you know, you, the old adage that you eat the apple one bite at a time, like is, I mean, you eat the elephant one bite at a time is really true. Like you, you got to boil things down into a manageable task 
Um, and, and, and that's the way you take care of folks, even when there's an emotional connection and, and look like I've, I'm thrilled to have been in the right place at the right time to care for some people who I love like family. Um, and, and it's, there's no question that the aftermath of that psychologically is harder. Um, but the actual act of taking care of them you know you're so in the moment um that that you don't think about like who it is what it is what the implications are what's going to happen afterwards um and so i think that's how you do it but but the aftermath of it you know i mean i often say like the at some point like i think all this shit's going to catch up uh to all of us you know one day um i mean hell can you and i have talked about this a lot like it's not normal to see the things that we see. Um, and I think in the law enforcement wellness movement right now, which is nothing but good for all of us, like, first of all, to sit there and see people who are tough and stoic say, look, it's okay to not be okay um, from this. And the second thing is to say, man, like, goddamn, like, take care of yourselves. Because at some point, like, you got to pay the piper for all of the things that you've seen for sure. Um, and, and, and how you do that, I hope is a way that is healthy and helps you move forward. Not everybody does. Dr. T I always reference her, her great quote is she said that the law enforcement profession is like a bad human experiment. You set an individual down for two to three decades and you show them horrible image after horrible image bad experience after bad experience and then you expect them to be normal out in the out in the uh, out in the wild and it's not it's just <laughs> it's just not feasible it's it's, it's not it's not and, and you know we we look like i don't know that we've done that great a job of preparing uh the next generation for what this job is truly like and i think we're gonna end up you know having some issues with that um down the road but i think as we move into sort of the next 20 year phase of this. Like we really have a lot of work to do, uh, to, to mitigate the impact of this job on, on people. Um, and look like I tell my, I tell everybody that doesn't really understand what we do like this. This is not like an easy thing to do. Like, and there are the truths of the way this has to be done in my opinion are sometimes ugly and they don't look good on camera or video or, you know, anytime, one, <clears throat> you know, one grown ass man has to exert his will on another, like for whatever reason, even no, no matter how righteous and, and, and appropriate it is like, it never really looks good. Um, and so, you know, you see that over and over and over again, it, it can be hard. The world is ugly, right? And, and especially in the first responder world, it's ugly. Hell, when, when you, whenever you receive a patient, whether you're in the ER or you're on the side of a house. There is something traumatic. There is something, violent, whether it's a car crash, there's something violent and traumatic that brought that person to your your arms. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not sure I would go with the world is ugly, Joe, because I think, like, my perspective on it is that, look, like, if you get to me alive, you got, like, a 90-something percent chance to go back out of wherever we are alive. Not you can't save everybody. I'm right. damn sure try, but I think like when you look at it that way, 
you know, the world's actually pretty incredible. Like I'm here. I am just like some kid from, from DC, like redskin fan in enemy territory that gets to come down here and, and, you know, do this awesome job with fantastic people. And, you know, the world's pretty cool that you get the opportunity to be in the right place at the right time and to have it continue. So, yeah, I don't know, but I get it. Like the shit we see is not normal and it's not normal over an accumulation of time. No, it's cumulative, and it stacks on, and it stacks on, and you never know what could break somebody. 100%. Right? Speaking of a not normal, yeah, you got Jeremy Borchard. Yeah. I mean, you you were pretty involved in his care at the hospital, yeah, right? I was. And, it, I mean, just to watch that guy's recovery and the, the way he still attacks life today is, I mean, unusual hey, for sure. Hey, listen, I mean, not only unusual, but, like, if I could bottle that – like that, you know, people have written best-selling books on grit, resilience, like leadership, leading from the front, like all these bullshit books that are out there that like, <laughs> you know, from people who have done things. But if I could bottle whatever is inside that dude and 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 use it for, you know, other patients and other people, I mean, an unbelievable tale of resilience because you know that wasn't his only um critical incident he was involved in like he had a handful of them in a row yeah and um and and, you know i i still to this day remember what the blood trail looked like through the hotel um and you know his femoral artery was revascularized by you know a guy in town here joe manet my you know, who's preceded me as the chief of trauma in Parkland, um, by a couple dudes. He's old now and I hope he hears that. Um, but he preceded me and, and was my, you know, mentor and colleague and friend. And, you know, in many ways, like second dad who raised me in the medical business and, 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 you know, helped me when, when my own dad couldn't. Um, and so, you know, I love Joe and his family and we're very close to this day. Um, but, you know, Joe saved Jeremy's leg and life that day um, as we were dealing with all the shit that was going on. And then I was glad to be able to help, like, get Jeremy through um, those injuries and, and, and look at what he's done now in terms of leading and rearing the next generation of guys in this business. And, in fact, I just saw um, yesterday or the day before on, I don't know if it was the Facebook or the Instagram feed or whatever, like a picture of Jeremy standing there training young SWAT operators to do this job. Um, and I can think of no better person to do it. Like, you know, Jeremy, in my opinion, is on par with every one of the legends from this team over the years with the, you know, Steve and Roberts and those guys, like every one of the legends, I think when the, you know, sort of, um, day of reckoning comes around in that, you know, big sort of senior SWAT competition in the sky. Like no question. Um, Jeremy's on par with every one of yeah, those. He's, dudes. he's definitely created a legacy for himself. No question. No, and, and, and done it in a way, um, that is just humble and, and caring and a great, great dude. Um, so yeah, no, that was, you know, look like, uh, it, again, lucky to be in the right place at the right time to exert some influence. But you know, that, that was 
one of the times where we really watched, um, you know, the, the other parts of this program, like come to play. And it wasn't me that dragged Jeremy away. Like we, you know, he, that was a patrolman and some firemen who did that because they had been through some training that, that, you know, we had ultimately put on. So, you know, thank God, um, for that. And, um, and for the fact that, you know, you know, gave Jeremy the chance to pay us back quote unquote, by doing all the good he's done since. His existence right now from that moment on is a miracle of how everything unfolded and how his life was saved and how he had the true grit to recover from that. Oh, man. You know, it, it, everything fell into place that day. And we're going to get, get him on here eventually and, and tell that and dissect that entire that Yeah, I have to there. admit, like, God damn, like, for after those two things happened to him, I was like, well, I'm not going to stand next to Jeremy for a while. It's just <laughs> yeah. like, dangerous. Distance. Yeah, it's the dangerous lightning around here. The lightning yeah, ride. no doubt. But, um, but, yeah, like, I mean, like I said, the the ultimate model of resilience and grit, in my opinion. I hope he does come tell the story because it's a good one. It is. Uh, you did when Ed Lujan mm-hmm. got got run over and, and when he was t- you saw mm-hmm. him. I did. Okay. Ed is our ATL chairman. His episode was number one, and uh, when I had the idea to, to do this podcast, I didn't really know what I was. I mean, I filling it out. Anybody listens to the earlier episodes, they can understand the sound and and uh, and and everybody just being kind of stiff on on the interviews. But Ed's story from the get-go is incredible. It's inspiring, and he talks about whenever you know you're you're at the hospital with him, and when you first saw his injuries, what what did you think, and what was your initial diagnosis as far as the yeah potential I mean, for recovery? Yeah, look, like you know, the first day is always a little rough, yeah, and um, and you know, I was a hundred percent confident Ed was going to survive. But, you know, Ed's a pretty dude. Like, yeah. And I was like, man, Ed's never going to look like Ed again. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I I was, you know, obviously you're not going to say that to him. But I was like, hey, look, man, like we're going to get you back to where you need to go. And and, and Ed was tough um, because he had bad injuries. Like he he, he had, had a lot of injuries. And um, but, I, you know, one of the things that was great, and I didn't know Ed that well. I mean, obviously, we knew of each other, but we not worked in the same spot or known. But I told him, like, look, like, I'm going to be with you every step of the way, and I'm not going to let this go any other way than the way that I want it to. And, you know, there were a couple nights where it was a little touch and go. Like, I had to sit at the bedside and, and be there with with um, with the Luhans. And, 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 you know, look, like, another guy who has – more than paid it back and continues to try to pay it back every day. Um, and I'm, you know, a lot of people talk shit about Parkland and the, 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 you know, who goes there in the clientele that it serves. But I mean, look at a guy like Ed who, you know, it represents the best of what occurs, um, on Harry Hines and, and, and come back to, to do this and continue to work. Yeah. He's come back to, uh, to lead this, great organization and i can't think of a better person and a better face of the ato of ed lujan and his recovery it's you know he told the story of it as his his wife uh you know his face was so damaged that like he needed a a recent picture of him to see how to put it back together and 
she showed you a picture of Brad Pitt or, or <laughs> so you, you got you got really close. I gotta say, that. <laughs> you know, I, uh, Marcella was just she's incredible too mm-hmm. um, in, in the way she supported him. But I remember having a conversation with her in the hospital, and I, you know, I told her like, look, she was obviously upset and talking about the implications, and I said, look, like. I'm going to tell you, like I tell all my patients, like, and family members, if, if I panic and you see me panicking, like you should get upset. And that hasn't happened since like 1986. But, um, I, I, I will just tell you, like, if that, I get to that point, like get worked up other than that, like we just going to work through these problems together. And before you look back on it, you know, being injured like Ed was or Jeremy or whatever, you know, it, people think of it as a sprint but it's really a marathon right and 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 every day you get a little bit better and before you know it you look back at the end of the race and you're like holy shit look how far i've come um and that's really the 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 metaphor to to understand because it's it uh, and look at ed like he's it's done incredible so you talked about ice in your veins we mentioned that earlier right that's what surgeons have we talked about how you're you're fairly unfazed at things and you just mentioned again, like, if I panic, there's an issue. And I remember I remember when when Darian had his issue on Bonnyview. Do you remember the story here? You remember what oh, I'm about to tell you? Oh, for sure. Uh, Darian was on and told it, but I want to hear your – I was, I was for but sure. I want to hear what Ollie told because there are some other pieces of that. No. So I was, I was running the inside of that operation, right? And when Darian – the gun went off, I look at Darian. Darian looks at me, and he just starts going down on the couch – and he like instantly grabs his tourniquet and starts trying to put it on himself. And I was like, man, this dude is switched on. Like, I don't even know what happened yet. He didn't know what happened yet. None of us did, but he's automatically going to a tourniquet. What seemed like about six hours later, you finally made it up the stairs. <laughs> um, and, and I, it was just like, you kind of bebopped in. You were kind of just like, Oh, look, there he is. What happened, man? You know, you're just, you're, you're extremely calm. There's, there's no panic. I'm over there just in a whirlwind of, of you need to hurry your ass up. Like, let's get this done. Um, you're trying to figure out how you're going to get Darian's pant leg open. You're talking to him a little bit. And I'm, like, trying to hand you scissors. I'm trying to get everything done in the quickest manner possible. And you're just at your own pace. You're you're not phased. And I was at the time, I was angry. And I think I actually slapped you with, in your vest. Um, <laughs> and I apologize for that. I think I've apologized a few times for it. But uh, it it showed me, number one, you don't have to be in a hurry for everything, like, calm in, in bad situations is better than like trying to get things done. So I adopted that philosophy a little bit and I hope that from, from there I got a little bit better at it, but I'd known Darian as long as I've known Joe, like we rode together on little T and it's, it's an interesting perspective where I'm at with, with the SWAT guys. Cause I'm supposed to be in charge, right? I'm the supervisor. I'm, I'm the, the ranking officer there, but I look up to every one of those guys, you know, 100%. it's, it's, it's a very weird dynamic how that works, but then you're there and I'm trying to get you to do your job. And you obviously know how to do your job. It's not <laughs> like it's new to you. But explain what you saw when you walked in and your perspective from it. Because, I mean, mine was obviously uh, red alert, red alert, everybody, yep. you know, yeah. let's, let's move. Yeah, so for me, um, you know, obviously I heard the gunshots. It was late in the operation. It's not the time, normal time you hear them. And immediately went up the stairs and and made entry and found him on the ground. And in fact, what I always find interesting is I remember people were still screaming, medic, doc, you know, all that shit. 
and I was already kneeling on the ground, like working on Darren. I was like, would you guys shut the fuck up? Like I'm right here. Like <laughs> Jesus, stop hollering. Like I'm here. And I think people just were in their OODA loop and didn't see sure. and recognize that I was already inside, already taking care of him. And they were still screaming like, where is he? I'm like, I'm right here, dudes. Um, and so, you know, like, look, got a functional tourniquet on Darian's leg to make sure. And, you know, what I remember is you're trying to bring, and, and listen, this is the same thing what good trauma surgeons do or SWAT operators or doctors do is really bring calm to chaos. And, 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 you know, I think we had sort of gotten things to a, once I knew he wasn't going to bleed to death, like we had gotten things to a fragile, like position. And I was like, all right, I'm going to take a look at this. I don't know if you remember this part, but like everybody was standing around like watching. And I was like, Darren, I got you, bro. It's going to be fine. And like, I cut his pants leg open and all the dudes in there were like, <laughs> Oh shit. You know? And I was like, it was ugly. Y'all yeah. are some unhelpful motherfuckers. <laughs> like you guys need to go. And then the whisper started, you're going to be fine. It's yeah. going to be okay. I was like, Hey bro, the, the peanut gallery was, Oh, the peanut gallery yeah. was brutal. Um, and then, so, you know, two things happened, um, in the Darien deal. I mean, a number of things happened, but two things that I remember very clearly first, um, you know, we got him on the stretcher, got the fire department there, took him down. And on the way to the hospital, uh, Darren was in a lot of pain. Tourniquets hurt. Obviously, his wounds were, were severe. So I decided that I was going to give him a little fentanyl um, pain medicine to, to help along. And, um, you know, I still was amped up and I had gloves on and all that. And so as I went to draw the fentanyl up from my kit, um, the bottle basically like exploded like i put too much air into it or something and uh the fentanyl like ran all down my yeah. arms and shit and the firemen bless their hearts like <laughs> slammed the brakes of the ambulance on and we're like oh shit we have a fentanyl spill like you know because everybody it's the boogie monster it's the yeah. boogie monster bro yeah like and and like the guy in the back like was gonna jump out i was like hey where are your paper towels bro and i was like wiping it off and he's like you're okay? Like, yeah, man, we spill this shit all the time. Like, can you keep driving, please? Yeah. Like, we got to get your ass to the hospital. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's something a little Sta more important yeah, going on here. Yeah, Stan, I'll explain this to you later. Um, but, but so that was the first thing. And the second thing, uh, I had finally gotten his pain under control. And, um, and we were going to, we got to the hospital. And uh, I go to get out. And, like, look, let's be honest. Like, I'd like to think I'm the most athletic dude. Uh, on the department, not exactly the case. Yeah, it's Andre Taylor and then you. Yeah, it's me. It's Andre Taylor, number one, uh, Ken Wolverton, two, <laughs> yeah, right, season right, right. three in my book. Joe, we put you on the list, too. Yeah. Um, but no, so I go to try to climb, execute this very athletic move to climb over him to get out of the ambulance. And my groin protector drags basically across his wound and his uh. foot. And he's like, ah, he screamed out. I was like, oh shit, I bet that did hurt, bro. So, sorry about that. So you teabagged his, like my his uh, Yeah, like his, I basically his like strafed his leg on the way out of the ambulance. So uh, he, I don't think he was too impressed uh, there. But you know, Darian's another, uh, uh, man, another great like example of a guy who like worked his ass off to rehab and recover needed a lot of surgery and a lot of work and and look where he is today you know resilient but it started with your pro the program yeah and the doctors being there on scene as opposed to him having to wake his second sir 
Yeah, I mean, look, I'd like to think that, like, the peanut gallery would have been able to get a tourniquet onto him and get him to the hospital and whatever. Like, I, I'd like to think we do it more elegantly and, and you know, that's our mid primary mission out there. Um, but, yeah, like, talk about being in the right place at the right time to save him. So. All right, Doc, I want to stay on the topic of um, critical incidents. You've seen so many. We would have a we would have a 10 hour episode. We would have a part eight Dr. Eastman. If we, <laughs> if we touched on every one of these, nobody wants to hear that shit. I can no, tell they do. I promise you, <clears throat> I may actually do that shit. I may actually get in here and have a volume one through 10. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, July 7th, 2016, we've had on several guests that have t- touched on that. Uh, Matt Baines was talking about his involvement. Everybody's got a story from that incident, yeah. whether, whether directly involved or indirectly or, uh, just a family member or a close friend, everybody's got a story that that ripple effect from that incident touched so many, and it still continues to do that. Can you talk about your role that night, how you got the how you got the call, your response, and what you saw and what you did? Yeah, you bet, Joe. So, you know, that was such a weird time uh, in in policing in general. It was like a, you know, it's kind of kind of the beginning of, I mean when everybody starts to hate us, right? It was that summer where it really was hard for the first time, in my opinion, like to be the police. Not that it's not hard previous to that, but it was really, that summer was different. Different. It felt different. And so that night, um, I was actually up in Addison having dinner with my college roommates who had gathered a bunch of them who were there. And actually my Tahoe was down, so I was driving a Mark, Tahoe at the time um and I was on the way back you know thankfully I hadn't had anything to drink because I was I'd driven my city truck because I knew this thing was going on this this protest in downtown and we had a few a squad working in another part of the city but not a sign of the protest and it was just there was a lot man it was tense and um so I was southbound on the tollway um I had just gotten south of 635 on my way home you know, when this jumped off. And actually the way I heard about it first was, um, a friend of mine from DHS, a dear friend used to work in Highland park, texted me and was like, WTF, are you okay? I had no idea anything was going on yet. And right after I was about to answer the text message, my phone rang and it was communications. And you know, they, I get daily calls. All my guys do from communications about, injured officers and whatever else is going on. And, um, and the very first th- this, I still don't know to this day who called me, but she screamed into the phone, like multiple officers down market in Lamar and slammed the phone down. Um, and, and you know, as it turned out, like obviously bad location, bad intersection, bad information, like, you know, all the above, but I, I, <clears throat> was already heading south, so I was able to turn on all the emergency equipment and come racing into downtown. Um, there were some odd instructions being given that night, uh, as you remember. Um, instructions to stage and gather up and, you know, look like... I, I'll be the first to tell you I'm not like a big fan of insubordination except when the, when the instructions are fucked up um, and, you know, people are shooting and killing our friends. Um, 
By the way, like that's probably like the fifteenth curse word I've said, and I understand that Eddie cussed twice in his episode, so I'm just trying to beat his record. Yeah, you, you uh, surpassed so, him. Yeah, I, I think I've got Eddie there. Um, so, um, sorry for all the tender-eared folks that are listening, but um, so look, uh, I skidded into the intersection of you know um, uh, right sort of just south of Greyhound with four other guys and you could hear the gun shots still going off um, north of us and I was like shit so I like went to the back of my truck grabbed a rifle and realized I was like I look like a protester I was like in shorts and a you know polo shirt so I quickly made a quick wardrobe change as we were all gathering our stuff and up into the mess we went and um, you know like it's funny every time we've trained in bounding each other i've always been like now if i ever have to do this shit in real life like something's gone dreadfully wrong and here we are bounding each other into this fight and you know covering each other as we go and um and look like you know the first officer i came to um was behind a car on the ground we were still a couple blocks out and i was like oh shit like you know, again, nobody knew what was going on. And I knelt beside him. I said, Hey man, where are you hit? Like, it just looked like he was kind of leaned up against the car. And, um, and it was a dude that was just had locked up, like couldn't move. Like he wasn't shot or hurt. He just was vapor locked. And, you know, I was like, Hey, just stay right here. Like you'll be all right. Like you're pretty far away from where all the mess is right now. Um, and off into the, to the fight we went, um, you know, interestingly you remember sort of certain things and we crossed the intersection at the community college building and there were reports that the shooter was elevated and shooting down at people and you know we we end up crossing the street um in a a bit of a diamond kind of and the guys were like slow down slow down stay together you know and i remember thinking very clearly to myself number one like you know bullshit like I'm the least athletic of all of us like you guys can definitely keep up and number two like you know and this has only probably happened three or four times in my career where as you're doing something you're like what the fuck are you doing like you're a doctor why are you in the middle of this mess you know um and so we got across the street they had just dragged Brent Thompson off the scene and transported him to the hospital so we passed all that mess um and got to the doors of the community college where the suspect had just shot his way into the building. And, um, and I remember one of the community college officers there, John, something I can't remember his last name was standing there and he was like, Hey, he went up here. The cameras don't work all this mess. And, um, and for me, like he had some blood on his waist and when I looked at him, he'd been shot. And I was, he's like, come on. I'm like, no, bro, you're out. Like, you were shot in the belly. Like, you need to go chill. Go to the command post and it'll get you taken care of. But he was stable, so I didn't stop to do anything else for him. We get into the stairwell. And, you know, at this point, like, we'd run four blocks and no one knew. You know, it's really disorienting down there. I mean, I always hear... I've heard many people describe the fog of war and I've never been on the battlefield, but you know, I, I can tell you like with the gunfire ricocheting off of buildings and reports of people, you know, in other locations, like 
I didn't know whether we were under attack by one person or 20 still at this point in the night. And, um, and so look, so we get like up onto the floor, get the guy pinned into that, you know, corner where he ended up and, and, you know, continued to manage the incident, you know, things you remember. And again, it's hard to separate out like what you think about, you know, if I had been one step faster, could I have saved one of these guys? Like if I had been in a little bit better shape or been, you know, and, and obviously like looking back on the incident probably not the case because I wouldn't have been standing there, but, but again, hard, like, and challenging. So anyway, so we get up there and I was standing there waiting and kind of holding a door because we were still waiting for other folks to arrive. And, uh, at this point, like probably 20 minutes, 30 minutes into it, it became clear. Like this was the only problem we had. There weren't others around the city. And I looked at my phone finally and I had, you know, 30 missed phone calls and the hospital had called and I was like, oh shit, like no time to deal with this right now. Um, but I, the phone rang again as the negotiation were starting and Larry was talking to the dude and it was the CEO of Parkland, Fred Cerise, great friend, great guy. And I was like, shit, if the CEO is calling me, like that's like my boss's boss's boss, you know, something must be going on at the hospital. I didn't even remember I was the backup surgeon on call. Like we had other backup people and and that's who ended up coming in to help. But anyway, so when I answered the phone, I was like, hello, you know, whispering. And he's like, Alex. And I'm like, yeah, Fred, like the dude's right here. Like what, what's up? And you know, he's like, well, call me back, man. I'm like, no, no, I'm good. You know what, what is going on? And he asked me, you know, if we expected many more casualties, you know, tonight. And I was like, man, I probably just won. Like, but we'll let you know. Um, and, 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 you know, after that, in the aftermath of this, my partner who was on call was furious at me, um, for a long time that I hadn't answered his phone call, but I'd answered Fred's. And it just was a simple matter of like, I was in the middle of this mess. The first few times the phone rang and, you know, you sort of had your aperture had opened back up and you're able to see the rest of the big picture um, when Fred called. So, you know, obviously the way that that went down, you know, I remember uh, we weren't using our radios for a number of reasons and they came to me and said, hey, have you heard the plan? And I was like, well, I've heard rumblings, but like, they're like, nah, like we're going to, you know, end it the way that it ended. Can you go back and look at the device and see what you think? You know, not exactly like in the standard training for a traumatologist to like assess the lethality of a IED that we're building for the first time. Um, unproven, you know, untrained. And I said to Jude Braun at the time, I'm like, Hey, look, man, like we need to put some frag in this because if we're really going to, you know, you want to, uh, some frag to go through the brainstem of this guy and end this instantly. And he was like, well, you know, Jude, well, brother, like, I, I don't know, like you might be on the other side of the wall and we're not sure how to, con I'm like, whoa, might be on the other side of the wall. What are you talking about, dude? Like, and I didn't think any twice about it. And we, you know, got the design of the device, like put together. So then fast forward here, we're getting ready to do this thing. 
And they're like, okay, everybody back out, like back off your perimeter position, like get a little farther away. And, you know, they were like, you stay, you stay. And I was like about to throw the deuce at this whole operation and back up a good bit. And they were like, oh no, Alex, like you stay right here in case something bad happens. And, you know, you're like, I remember sitting there thinking like something bad happened, like Something bad by definition is about to happen. Like we're, we're about to make something bad happen. And so all of a sudden I turned around and one of the fire marshals was still up there. And I was like, what is this guy still doing here? But it was too late to get him like out of there. And I was like, hey, man, like watch that door. If anybody comes through, like, you know, watch our backs or whatever. So the whole thing goes down. And um, again, you ask when I remember, you know, the, the, the device goes and there was like a couple gunshots at the afterwards that and i man like that is probably the first time not the first time that was like one of the clear times i was like okay now i'm scared like we have the fucking terminator in the back of this thing like he just got blown up and he's still busting caps like that at that point i was like oh man like guess it's it never going to guess it didn't work yeah. like yeah it's never going to end um and then, you know, we go up to him and, um, and, and I, you know, the guys like hook a rope to him and roll the first time we see him, he sort of bent over at the waist, watch him for a little bit from afar. And I'm like, I think he's dead. Like, don't see him breathe. Um, and it's funny, you know, you talk about Jeremy Borchert, like Jeremy's trying desperately to cover me as I'm looking through like a stud gap and he keeps bumping me like he wants the view. I want the view. He wants the view. I want the view. And I love these dudes for always watching out for me and protecting me like, you know, a teammate and family member. But Jeremy and I was like, Hey, I was like, Hey man, can like, can you give me a minute? And he's like, well, what if he sits up and tries to shoot you? I'm like, well, like not really what I want to do, but like, I'll take care of it. Like, I promise you, like I'll shoot him. Like, don't worry. And, um, and we laughed about that afterwards. And, you know, once he was pronounced dead, we bounced, um, and got out and then, you know, uh, not to make light of an otherwise like pretty awful night for the city and the department, but, you know, they treated all of us like suspects as we previously did. I hope this is better, but, you know, we're all gathered around and like the, you know, SIU guys show up and there's like seven blocks of crime scene with hundreds of spent casings in the street like you know they're all sort of scratching their heads like holy shit what do we do so we're all in custody basically while this happens and the guys are like uh it was pup and wante were like hey hey man we have a bone to pick with you and i was like tonight of all nights like fuck did i do wrong tonight you know and they were like well here's the thing bro uh, 15 years we've been doing this together. We've never seen you finish first on any run ever in the history of this team. <laughs> but all of a sudden, like, the dude's shooting at us, and you're fast as can be. So I was like, well, guys, like, come on, man. It's in you. So, yeah, it's in there somewhere, hidden, hidden. You can't hide an athlete. Can't, can't. But, I mean, like, um, you know, what a crazy, crazy deal. And the aftermath of that um, – was incredible and and really has helped shaped much not shape because i i felt strongly about this before but helped really guide my um 
what I would consider to be like my guiding principles of officer wellness. You know, we all did so well, I think, because we were together as a unit. You know, every day after that, something crazy was happening because they thought it was, you know, there were all these copycat threats and all that. But it allowed us to be together and to keep your peer group um, together to help support each other through it. And we weren't perfect. I mean, there were guys who who bore the scars of that night um, that survived, you know. And I mean, I think Matt's one of them. Um, But a lot of people who were involved in that were never the same. And I don't think any of us will be. You know, it's one of those incidents where, you know, it's kind of a once in a, thankfully, knock on wood, I hope, once in a career deal. So um, you're you're pretty self-aware. Uh, how do you think it affected you? Oh, listen, I mean, I was a mess for a couple weeks after that. Um, and I look back um, on the way that I felt and the, you know, it's almost like you're not yourself, right? Like... The very next day was my um, my son's birthday party. <coughs> Excuse me, and I had to leave. You know, I had family in town and all that. Sounds and like, like an easy transition. Yeah, and you know, you like, and I had to leave in the middle because that's when they thought somebody was attacking the parking garage that day. <laughs> like, I didn't have the heart to tell them that like nobody wants to attack the headquarters parking garage. Like, just not that. Yeah, we've done that before. Yeah, we've done it. Like that's so last year, um, but. But, you know, you're not yourself. And it took me the better part of two or three weeks to really, you know, just get to the point where I was back to normal again. You know, and and the other part of this, you know, I felt responsible for what had occurred at the hospital, even though I was in the field and had to leave the scene for a minute to check my troops in the middle of the night, make sure everybody was okay. And so you sort of got both ends because I had had the incident downtown and then i ended up timing it perfectly to be at the hospital when the me was picking up um mike and it was just brutal you know um it's just brutal and so like uh man i don't know how you you know sort of make the comeback from that other than to focus on your peer group focus on the support you need talk to your loved ones and the people who you care about care about you you know, just an absolute um, challenge. I'm glad I was there. Like, I'm glad I didn't let my friends go into that and brothers without me. Um, but man, what a what a night for all of us. When you when that explosion happened and you and you and you knew that it was finally over, what was that feeling like? You know, it's really odd. Like, uh, I mean, here I am, like, sworn to do no harm and save lives and all the things, the oaths that I've sworn. And I I felt literally, like, no remorse. I was angry. Um, I was angry that this guy made us do that to him. And and I was angry at him for um, taking the lives of so many folks who were only there uh, to do the right thing for this city and this community, um, senseless and needless loss of life. Um, so I remember being angry, but you know, the, the, the degree of relief you feel is incredible. And, um, and I, you know, I got, I didn't get home until probably six o'clock in the morning, six fifteen, And I was literally going to walk into my house 
take a shower because I was, you know, a mess and turn around and go to the hospital and have a debriefing at seven for my teams, my trauma teams. And, um, and I walked into the house and I remember going into my son's room. Like you're just drawn to go into my son's room and look at him. And he was in his crib face down with his butt up in the air, like a two year old sleeps. So peaceful and like oblivious, thank God, of what had happened to his dad and his dad's friends and the city and all that. Um, and that's where I cried for the first time. And I remember it plain as day. I mean, that's where, you know, the first time I allowed, you know, to sort of think like I could have not seen um, him again. And, and that's where I cried for the first time. And it was not the last. And I knew, you know, that day that like we'd be talking about this for a long time, but I resolved, you know, when I sort of did what we all do, which was like, think about myself for about two minutes and then got my shit together and had to go like on with the work at hand, which is not the way to do it. But, you know, I knew that like we would be dealing with the aftermath of this for a long time and that I would try to become a voice for you know, resilience and all the the things we've talked about and try to harness this to, and all the skill sets that I've developed to try to help people get through it. So, so let's talk about those skill sets. Um, how, how do you decompress? You know, what do you, what do you do as a professional to, to deal with the traumas that you've experienced? Yeah. I mean, it's, a challenge, right? Like I think there have been times in my career and certainly after um, July 7th where, you know, you've treated people uh, differently than I would like to have or done things that are different than I would want to do because you're really coping with, you know, what you're dealing with. And so for me, like, you know, I try to fall back on <clears throat> friends, family, you know, I, I try to find something that you can sit outside and enjoy, whether it's working out or whatever, like something you can do um, to 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 try to unwind. And, you know, I, I, I I'm not the best at this for sure. Um, you know, and I I always notice when I go on vacation, it takes me like a few days. I say always go on vacation, like the one vacation I've taken in the last four years you know, it takes me some time to really unwind. Um, and it's hard. I'm not, I'm not the best at it. Doc, okay. um, you, you said that that's still affecting all of us and it always will. And, and there are people here that carry the scars from that, from that day. And honestly, just, just a whole career, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got a, you've got a whole career of both sides, law enforcement. And as a, as a medical professional, that's, that's, you've risen to the highest level. You know, and can you tell the listener what you're doing now and what your role is in the, med in the medical community and yeah. what is next for Dr. Alex Eastman? Ooh, I have no idea what's next. Um, but currently, um, and uh, I, a few years ago, got um, headhunted by the U.S. government um, and the Department of Homeland Security to serve as the senior medical officer for operations for DHS. So I basically get the chance to do 
very similar things to what I've done here in Dallas on a huge scale for DHS. Um, it's everything from uh, serving as the secretary's protective medical officer all the way to running a large uh, s- system of law enforcement EMTs and paramedics to the number of about 5,000 dudes, well, men and women, it's not just guys. Um, and so I get the chance to really take, you know, I'd like to, th- I don't think it's the final exam, but take all of the things that this place has given me and learned and try to apply them on a national scale. And I've been doing that since Labor Day weekend 2018. Here we are coming up on the fourth year uh, anniversary of that. Doesn't seem like that. And I've gotten to do some pretty um, insane things for um, this nation and the people who protect it. And I'm proud to do it. I still am a active practicing surgeon that takes trauma call and obviously still do stuff um, for the police department and proud to serve in those roles. In terms of what's next, I have no idea, but I, I can tell you, Joe, that um, it's going to, I'm going to, you know, these doors I hope are going to keep opening and I'm going to keep walking through them like I promised Norman I would years ago. And um, I'm going to try to do the best I can do um, taking care of people and, 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 building those relationships for um, as long as I can, because I think I've got some more to give. Well, I think you got plenty of doors you're going to kick open as you always have. And man, I, this, this story is incredible. You're you're a a gem and the the city of Dallas is lucky. And this department especially is lucky to have somebody like you in our corner to make us safer. Thank you so much. Seriously. Well, yeah, thanks Thanks for your service. Thanks for everything you do. Uh, thanks for being a part of, of what you do and uh, just continue being successful in everything you do. You know, I mean, it's it's been great to work with you. It's been great to, to get to know you personally, professionally, everything, and thank you for what you do for us. No, fellas, thanks. And, and to you guys, um, Ken, Joe, and to all the people that are listening, like uh, the support from this organization has been incredible for me and to have been a part of it for this long. I never, ever would have thought that this is the direction um, my career would go, but it's truly a calling and a family. And and to each of you that are out there, like, look out for one another, look out for the place, and um, let's get on uh, with the business of making this you know, a better, safer place to live. Dr. Alex Eastman. ATL listeners, thank you.